Good evening. I want to welcome any visitors that might be here. We are on our verse-by-verse study of Joel. Well, in the morning we do a kind of an in-depth study to get a more uh, deeper um, understanding of each book that we go through. So, we've done an introduction. I would encourage you to get or download it from the um, um, website. And uh, we'll start verse by verse. So you have a Bible, why don't you turn to the book of Joel, please. The book of Joel. Now, if you were with us for our introduction, you've gotten the divisions of the book. You've got key words and key themes and different things that we pointed out uh, about Joel, so we won't be repeating all that, so I would encourage you to get that. But here now, Joel, again, the second minor prophet, um, only three little chapters, um, about 73 verses, uh, provides for us the last day prophetical scenario of the day of the Lord. Uh, he is believed to have coined that phrase, as we've repeated many times through the, our study, and uh, all the other prophets follow him. And it's a key phrase, um, uh, many different phrases, the day, that day, that great day, and the day of the Lord over 75 times the Old Testament. It's throughout the New Testament also. And as we saw this morning that it um, entails more than just a one-time event. It's a period of time with many events in it. And uh, as you look at all the prophets, you look at the Old and the New Testament, you put it all together, and uh, you can see by the um, context of each verse, uh, old or new, you can see the markings in the context, whether it's speaking within just the Old Testament, present um, judgment that we'll see, or whether it's going into the future and giving you parameters of whether it is dealing specifically with the Great Tribulation, whether it's dealing with the Kingdom Age, whether it's dealing with the Millennial, or it's dealing with the New and uh, in, uh, in uh, Heaven and Earth. So all of those things will, will help you to understand that. So here now, in the opening chapter, chapter 1, in verse 1 through 12, it's the call to acknowledge God's judgment. God is holy, as you know, and he tells us that over and over again. The seraphims uh, that we see in Isaiah chapter 6 flying overhead, it says, Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and they covered their face with two wings, two their feet, and two they flew. And these are the seraphims that fly overhead on the throne of God. The cherubims are on the side of God for the government of God. You have a perfect symbol and emblem and type and shadow in the Ark of the Covenant. And remember, the Ark of the Covenant is simply a shadow of things in heaven. It's the throne in heaven. If you walk through the book of Revelation and you start reading from chapter 1 and read very carefully, you will see it's the throne in heaven. You get out there in chapter 4, chapter 5. You have the same kind of scenario that you have in Ezekiel in the opening chapter. And then later on, again... And so you see the resemblance of of the heavenly uh, throne to the earthly shadow that he gave in the Ark of the Covenant and many times the description. And so, um, since God is holy, he has to judge sin. Sin has to be confessed and turned from, or God deals with individuals. Now, how long God waits and how he deals with that is is his business. He's sovereign. Um, We certainly get enough examples in the Scripture that we shouldn't think that we should play Russian roulette with God or think that somehow we are different from somebody else. And so uh, God always encourages us to turn from sin and to confess and abandon it 
and trust him for the grace sufficient to deal with the things that are going on in our life so that we can be more like him and less like us. And that's always the, the short of the run of our life in Christ. The difficulty is as we move through life, the different things that confront us and the situations that we put ourselves in or other people put ourselves in, then we have the responsibility, how are we going to respond? Am I going to respond in the flesh or am I going to respond in the new man, the life of the Spirit? Am I going to trust my intellect, my abilities, or am I going to turn to God and confess my inability and my lack of desire to even deal with this thing in my own way because I will only add hurt to myself and to others. And that's always the wisest thing. But it's, as, as sinners, sometimes we are so dead set in our own way or we have been um, so um, set upon whatever thing that we're into or the thing that we are reluctant to let go or the thing that has hold of us that rather than to turn to God and just rest in Him and have Him touch us, we just very stubbornly remain on that difficulty and we didn't have to. Remember that the journey across the wilderness was supposed to take them only 11 days. They were there for 40 years. And that's a picture of the potential for you and I, for any scenario that comes into my life. I can get it over as soon as I want. I mentioned to you before that when the, the frogs were um, brought upon Egypt with the plague and Pharaoh got tired and sick of them and he called Moses and uh, he says, you got to get these guys out of here. And Moses says, well, yeah, when do you want them out? He says, tomorrow. Why tomorrow? What's wrong with right now? Uh, somehow it, it's our sin nature. We're prone that way. And unless we recognize that and we realize that every day of our life, then certainly those potentials for those pitfalls are for each of us. And so here, the call to acknowledge God's um, judgment. In uh, verse 1, he says, The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Bethuel. Um, in this opening verse, you have the introduction here, and it, um, it gives you exactly um, the source of the words. These are not the words of Joel. They are the words of the Lord. He's speaking under divine inspiration. Second um, Peter chapter 1 verse, 1 verse 20 through 21 says that the men of old did not speak of their own impulse or origin, but they were carried along by the Spirit of God. So when they spoke, they were speaking inerrantly, infallibly, and when they were writing prophets, that also was entailed. And so these are the words really of God himself. All scriptures given by inspiration of God for doctrine, correction, instruction, and righteousness that the man of God might be thoroughly furnished into every good work in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And that's why Jesus says, not one yoke, one tittle shall fail from the law. Everything will be fulfilled. He honors his word above his name, we are told in the scriptures. And so the specific messenger here chosen by God was imparted revelation for a very specific time, about 835, 825 as we've seen, this is the time he's, he's, he's preaching and calling repentance for Judah, Jerusalem. We've pointed out how many times he mentions Zion, Jerusalem, Judah. This is the southern kingdom. Um, the name Joel means God, Yahweh is God. It's found 20 times in the scripture, about 12, 13 times. There's different individuals distinct from the others. The other ones are repetitive. But here the prophet is the son of Bethuel, and we don't know who he is. His name means vision of God. And uh, that's all we know about him. 
Um, many of the prophets would give us a longer genealogy, some kind of tie with the king so we can know the dates. Um, he doesn't as well as three or four other ones of the minor prophets. Now, in verse 2 and 3, he says, Tell your children, I'm sorry, verse 2, Hear this, you elders, and give ear, all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or even in the days of your fathers? Tell your children about it. Let your children tell their children and their children another generation. Here we have the appeal for the elders and the people. And the summon is to hear. The word Shema means to listen with the idea of paying heed. You as parents can identify. If you have kids, you know, you say something to your kid and then all of a sudden you... You know, you go in there and you say, Good night, call you. I didn't hear you. No, you didn't listen. You heard me, but you didn't obey. You didn't listen. And here again, they were spiritually deaf. Remember, we just finished um, Hosea. He's preaching and proclaiming to the northern kingdom. Judah in the south has been warned by Isaiah. And they're going to go in captivity. He's warning them. And they're supposed to pay heed that they not be like their sister and go the same way as the north. But they haven't paid attention. And so here again, with the idea of listening, obeying, acknowledging what's going on, understanding their condition. Again, as parents, we speak to our children. Do you understand what I'm telling you? Do you understand why I'm telling you this? Do you you see what can happen? And what we're looking for is an affirmation that they're connecting the dots. <laughs> and not just simply saying, yeah, 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 and they roll their head back. <laughs> you know, we know when the connection's made and we know when they're mocking us, right? And I can just see, you know, God is trying to get our attention. Well, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, I know, I know, I know. I know. And he wants to reach down and smack us maybe. As if we know it all, we don't. As if somehow we're the exception. The elders were the ones responsible for the instruction, the direction, and the oversight and discipline of the people. And when the priesthood becomes corrupt, the elders become corrupt, then the people go the same way. The leaders are very important. They were more liable to God, more responsible, the greater authority they had. And all the inhabitants here of the land were the people of Judah and Benjamin. Remember, ten tribes were in the north, given to um, Jeroboam the first by Hijah, and then two tribes would be left to David, Benjamin and Judah, for the promise that he made to him. Um, th- this is nothing new. You, you you see this also in Amos chapter three, verse one, four one, five one, and four one. The ones that are the guiltiest are the women who are calling for their husbands to bring drink and the elders. <laughs> Now, it seems to be that as we go through Hosea and here in Joel and we get into Amos, drinking was a big, big problem. It was huge. Drinking destroys, as we're going to see, the lives of people. You, you understand that? We look to our nation. We got more than just drinking problems. We got drugs. We got half of the nation is on prescription drugs and the other one on illegal drugs. It's amazing to me. And um, here, those um, who were the elders, 
the people now called to pay heed. Jesus constantly said he was near, let him hear. To the churches of Revelation, the Spirit says, he was near, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Always listening. Jesus is a key verse all the time. Notice also the question in verse 2 is about the severity of the plague of locusts. If they could recall such a thing, the question is rhetorical. It only has one answer. Nothing like it. It's unparalleled. We've never heard of this. We've never seen this. This is bad. Again, this is going to be pointing to a type of the future judgment of the day of the Lord as we move through the book. Okay, you have the short term, you have the long term. And the command of God by Joel here was to warn the future generations. Four generations. The fathers, their children, their children, the grandchildren, the great-grandchildren. That's a lot of years. When I lived in Mexico City, when I came here when I was seven years old, it was my great-grandmother, my grandmother, my dad, and myself. So that was four generations. So I knew my great-grandmother that was born probably... My grandmother was born in 1897, so my great-grandmother had to be born at least 1850. So though it was 1957, I knew someone that was born in, 19, in 1850. That's four generations. To warn them, lest they should come to the same place. Again, we do it with our children. We warn them because we have seen what destruction sin does. We have seen what compromise does. We have seen what the world does. We know the danger. We know the destruction. We know the corruption. And so we are fearful for our children. And that prompts us to warn them. But here, these guys are so bound up in their sin and disobedience, it's just like nothing. But you know, when you are in the world and you stay there long enough, pretty soon as a parent, if you don't get better, you get corrupt. Then when your kids are into the, you laugh, oh yeah, he just got drunk last night. It was funny. And he came in, they had the aquarium, man. And, you, and then you as an example are worse as an example. Because there's no sense of, uh, of wisdom, no sense of, Direction, and um, if you if you would take as a reproof for your child, I mean, when I was out in the world, I, I knew parents that partied with us. You know, they're just part of the party too. You know, we thought they were cool. They're cool, all right. And when you come to the Lord, you realize, man, how horrible is that? And this is the case here. Warning. The implication is that it was due to the sin. Though only alcohol is being mentioned, the devastation of the crops, God doesn't just do this because he wants people to squirm. There was sin. Paul the Apostle speaks about that young man that was sleeping with his um, stepmother in 1 Corinthians 5.5. 5, and he says, boot him out of the church. What's the matter with you guys letting them stay in the church? And you know the sin corrupts not only him, but the church also. And um, it just, it, it, it taints a person. It destroys a person. And God would rather that 
we deal with someone out of love, calling them to repentance, and if they don't, that we would take stringent measures if we need to as a demonstration of our love. That they don't see our permissiveness as some type of condonance to sin under the banner of love. Now, when there's repentance, we want to be as gracious as God is to us. When there's that acknowledgement, that confession, and a promise to abandon, we take it by face value. We embrace it. We rejoice with the individual. It's buried. It's gone. And we're not looking to find them in sin again. Because if it is, it'll come out. Now, God knows the end from the beginning when we come to Him. He, he doesn't have to wait. Okay, I'll just let time run. Let's see if He's really true or not. He knows from the beginning. He knows everything. And so here He calls them to make that judgment to those generations. Again, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 9, chapter 6, verse 6 and 7, the parental responsibility to pass our faith to the next generation. Transferring it, my children, my grandchildren, if the Lord should tell my great-grandchildren, to see your children, your grandchildren, your, uh, all of them walk with the Lord. What a joy because you know of what they're escaping. So much pain, destruction, devastation. And so, here in verse 4, we get the four stages of the locust now. This is a literal plague that's going on. It's God's judgment. He says, For what the uh, chewing locust left, and the swarming locust has eaten, what the swarming locust left, and the crawling locust has eaten, and what the crawling locust left, the consuming locust has eaten. And so he's dealing with his various um, locusts. Um, there are about nine different um, Names for locusts is grasshoppers in the Old Testament. Four of these right here are, are, are recorded out of those nine. And, and it doesn't give four different kinds, but he gives a different four stages that they move through. They're developmental. And, and it shows the progression, the chewing. Uh, they come and they just cut everything up. The swarming, they come in droves. I mean, we're going to get some of the uh, depiction of that where the sun is completely darkened. Um, and many of these can be verified through history in the Middle East, uh, in Jerusalem at different times, and the devastation of the crops. The second one, the swarming, again, the multitude, the crawling, going through the, through the uh, fruit and the vines, and then the consuming, different stages where there's, it's just devastated. The bark is taken off. It just denuders everything completely. Um, farmers have... have uh, I always have to deal with the pest of things and the bugs and the worms and, and all that kind of stuff. Hard work. But this is God's direct judgment upon them. Because remember, they were giving glory to idol gods. Yet they were still saying, yeah, we know Yahweh. More so in the northern kingdom, but the southern kingdom was still following the same thing. Now in verse 5 through 7, the prophet uh, addresses the national problem here. Um, Awake you drunkards and weep and wail all you drinkers of wine because of the new wine for it has been cut off 
from your mouth. Verse 6 says, For a nation has come up against my land, strong and without number. His teeth are the teeth of a lion, and he has the fangs of a fierce lion. He has laid waste my vine and ruined my fig tree. He has stripped it bare and thrown it away. Its branches are made white. There you have the various descriptions. Now, notice in verse 5 there, God through Joel commanded the drunkards to wail for the loss of the new wine. Why? Because the plague has just devastated their source of drinking. <laughs> the vineyards. He says, you should be the first one to be complaining and seeking me. Not that God wants them to get drunk, but in other words, their intoxication has so demoralized them. If you were in the world for any set amount of time, you know that alcohol is not a stimulant. It's a depressant. It, it, it makes you think you can do things that you really can't. It's false courage. It's stupidity in all capital letters. <laughs> and uh, the Proverbs speak, uh, if you're going to give somebody strong drink, give it to someone who's ready to die. <laughs> it speaks about the guy who's drinking and, he, you know, he doesn't know where he's at. And, you know, he's just twirling around and he's sick and he, you know, and all of this kind of stuff. Cause you see strange things, say dumb things, all that kind of stuff. To do things that just, you would lower your inhibitions, your morality, everything. And then after the fact, of course, there's the consequences. Alcohol is uh, one of the major signs of a decaying nation. With that follows everything else that goes along with it. Immorality, destruction of family, the loss of wages. Google some time on um, the Internet. Not that everything on the Internet is true, <laughs> but if you verify some stuff, uh, there's a lot of good stuff in there. Just uh, the amount of dollar loss, millions and billions of dollars yearly in wage loss due to alcoholism in the workforce. It's amazing. You want to add to that the drugs? And now the permissiveness of um, marijuana dispensaries. And it brings in more permissiveness, more destruction, more loss of wages, decay society more. And you see this, the, the states that have done this, like Colorado. <laughs> Compare Colorado before it passed all the marijuana laws and now what it has. Hands down, you will see an increase in crime, prostitution, lack of work, crime, home invasions, everything. Our politicians are so out to lunch. It's amazing. And so, not to speak of the violence that comes along with all this. In verse 6 and 7, notice the locusts are pictured as a nation here. Now those that interpret chapter 1 as Assyria from the north, they make this a literal army. Well, no, this is a literal plague of locusts. And the Lord is describing through Joel the actual destruction of this, the four stages of the locusts. 
God personifies the locust as the nation, identifying as my land. The land belongs to him. He gave it to them. Remember, he told Moses to tell the people, when you go in the land and you get those vines and you get those farms and you get those buildings and you get those cities and you get those cisterns, don't, you didn't work for it. I gave it to you. Don't forget me. Don't worship other gods. And exactly what he warned them about, they ended up doing one step at a time. Notice God describes the locusts as powerful, innumerable, and destructive with their teeth as a lion and fangs as a fierce lion. They just eat up. You ever see what concrete termites can do to concrete? You talk about teeth like lion, <laughs> little bugs, <laughs> or just termites themselves, what they'll do to a house. They'll just eat it up. Here he describes them, just destroying all the vegetation. Figurative language used to depict a literal plague. It's God's army because God is the one who has control of his nature, right? He can bring down fire and brimstone. He can bring an earthquake. He can use animals to bring vengeance. In fact, we, we see that in the history of kings, where God called on the animals to bring vengeance on the people at times. So God's in control. God described in verse 7 the devastation of the four states of the locusts. They laid waste the vine and ruined the fig tree. They stripped it bare. And the branches are made white. The progressive stages. The first stage came in and just kind of nibbled the second a little more, the third more, and the last one just did it all in. You know, like if you're driving down the desert and all of a sudden there's a sandstorm. And you know, you, you, it's, it's not that bad, but man, it's, you can hear it on your car and then it gets worse and then all of a sudden it's, it's, the windows are really showing the pitting and, and before you know it, it gets worse and nothing you can do and you just drive through and by the time you get out of the storm, you, you, you your car's just been sandblasted. All the pain is pitted and everything else. Nothing you can do about it. Notice God says there in verse 7, My vine, my fig tree, both are symbols for Israel. Isaiah 5, Hosea 9.10, Jeremiah 24.6-8, Jesus says, learn a parable from the fig tree in Matthew 24. When the fig tree begins to bud. Isaiah chapter 6 or 5. He says, I, you know, I, I, I hedged you around. I fertilized you. I watered you. I did all that I could. And I was expecting a good, good crop of grapes. And what happened? Wild grapes. And then God says, what more could I have done? In other words, I had nothing to do with your going away from me. Now think about it if you're a Calvinist. Because you say that everything happened by the decrees of God. So either Israel 
moved away from God, departed from God because God decreed it, or because they had a free will to move away? Which one is it? If God decreed it, then God's responsible for their backsliding. And he has no right to chasten or judge them, right? Though there are the decrees of God that will happen and nothing will alter them, the first coming, the second coming, the Antichrist, but God does not force human will. Nor does he force you to do evil by decree. Otherwise, he would be author of sin. So you have to be careful what you say about God. You have to be careful what theology you embrace. Okay? God is holy. Verse 8 down to 12. The summon for genuine sorrow over their sin. Verse 8, it says, Lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. So now, the appeal to the nation is as, as a virgin. This is a simile. The nation, and we, we saw that in Hosea, we see it in Amos. You only have I known. What happened to the love of the espousal in the wilderness? When that exodus, and, and you were in love with me, and, and there was that courtship, and I, I taught you how to walk, and I, I, I protected you, I provided for you. So the lamentation as a virgin betrothed to a husband of her youth. In other words, he was taken away. And she was never able to partake and enjoy all the benefits and the promises of marriage. Now stop and think about it. Yahweh took Israel, made her a nation, brought her out of Egypt, married her, took care of her. And now she willingly forfeited all her benefits, all the promises for God to protect her, to provide for her, to be her husband, to be her head, to be her protector. He says here, lament. It's a grievous thing that you've brought upon yourself. I did not do this. Just like you once again as a parent, when you confront your child. It's because they are responsible for what they've done. You didn't force them to do the evil or the wrong. You did not threaten them, if you don't do this, and then I'm going to get you. They, and that's the authority you have to confront them, because you are totally innocent of what your child has done. And what he's done has been contrary to what you've taught him, exhorted him, and warned him. And that makes you even matter. It insults you. And it's the same with God. We should thank God that he's not like us. We would be done. He's long-suffering. He's merciful. He's kind. But God does have a line. That once people cross it, God and all his love can do nothing. I don't know where that line is. But the warning is always to turn. This is why the prophets were called out. Because the priests, the kings, and the people had become so corrupt that the prophets were calling back the people of God to God. And as you know, they stoned many of them, put them to death. They didn't want to hear it. When we get to Amos, we'll, we'll see what they told him. They told him, get out of town. And so, um, 
in verse 8. Verse 9. He says, The grain offering and the drink offering have been cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn who minister to the Lord. So here again, there, she's to be girded here in, in sackcloth. Like burlap, something that's afflicting to you. It's a, it's a sense of, of, um, of uh, lamentation, of, of, of repentance to the Lord. Grief and sorrow, affliction. Over their personal loss in verse 8. Judah was not doing this, but rather continuing her sin. So he's calling her to repentance. The judgment of God by the plague had affected the offerings of the temple. And the priests mourned in the ministry to the Lord. But they were part of the problem. They weren't innocent, many of them. In verse 10. The field is wasted, the land mourns, for the grain is ruined, the new wine is dried up, and oil fails. So the judgment of God had affected the national product. As we look to our nation and we see how we have waned so fast in the past 50 years from what we used to be. And it has to do directly with the same thing that we're looking at here. People moving away from God, thinking we're so smart, leaning to our own understanding, the education, the the science, the uh, so-called science, evolution. And trusting in our wealth and in our might. And we see the devastation of our nation, the national product was affected. The businesses of America have gone abroad. All the tool and dye industry, all the garment industry. No one has any craft anymore in America. Real craftsmanship is lost. Not even known anymore. And it has to do with turning away from God. It has to do with living for other gods. Materialism, intellectualism, pleasure. They affect one person, then two, then three, then four, then a whole nation. You, you can't get away from it. The grain is ruined, the new wine is dried up, the oil fails as God has cut off the rain. Now we're in a supposedly drought. Could God be in it? Well, I think he could be. Some of this drought is man-made. We live in a desert. California is a desert. Los Angeles is a desert. The whole area here. There's plenty of things they could do to hold the rain that we get every year, but we just let it run out. There's a lot of other things they can do, but they don't. I don't know if you listen to the news in the morning, but um, I think they're having a, a, um, a water break at least once a day because the pressure in the pipes not giving out water enough, right? And so they get to spill millions of gallons and you and I get to pay for it. 
Everybody lets their lawns die, but the city doesn't, right? And certainly the big guys in the city, their house, they don't. Drive through San Marino. See if there's any lawns that are dry. Go through Beverly Hills. Of course not. And so we see that God can bring judgment. God will use nature. And all that comes upon a nation that turns its back upon God. Now, if we were like Russia, and we declared that we did not believe in God, that we were atheists, God would just let us run. But we are busted. Every coin, every dollar says in God we trust. Our documents... Federalist Papers, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, every monument in Washington bears the mark of believing in the God of the Bible. Therefore, we are guilty before God. And God takes us at our word. And if we think that we can escape God's judgment, then we don't understand God of the Bible. And so we see parallels here. Now, the United States is not mentioned anywhere in the Bible. I don't care who tells you what. It's just not there. Maybe because it won't be here when the Lord returns. I don't know. I know one nation that will be here when the Lord returns, Israel. (laughs) I can tell you that for sure. Israel is the safest place in the world. They won't be in danger until the Antichrist comes. We are more in danger than Israel. Trust me. Because my Bible says they will be here for the tribulation, great tribulation. I don't know about the United States. There's nothing to indicate that we will. Now remember, Deuteronomy 29, or 27 and 28, and Leviticus 26, you always have to cross-reference. And when God is talking about judgment, you have the blessings and the cursings. They always relate to that, okay? So remember those three chapters. Deuteronomy 27, 28, and Leviticus 26. If you do this, I will bless you. If you do this, I'll get you. (laughs) There's a bunch of lists. Now, God can't lie, okay? But don't get all weird with God. You do the same thing with your son and daughter. Hey, If you do that, take you out for dinner. Okay. If you don't do that, you cannot have any dinner. Right? Same thing. No different. And so, verse 11. Be ashamed, you farmers. Wail, you vine dressers. For the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. So, Here the farmers were to be ashamed because they were supposed to produce food, right? They had a responsibility. Now, it's interesting. The parallels are incredible. Now, you know that I I could be wrong. I'm just going to throw it out. It could be seven to ten years ago that Barbara Boxer blocked that whole um, San Joaquin Valley um, for water to be turned on because of that stupid minnow fish. And the most fertile land in the nation 
was destroyed. Now the minnow fish is dead. Do you think these people are ignorant? No, they're not ignorant. Some of the people we have in government are very, very, very evil. They know exactly what they're doing. Listen to me. Gold and silver are not the real gold and silver. Gold and silver is food and water. Understand? I don't care what kind of car you drive. I don't care how much your house is worth, 10 to 40 million. If you don't have food and water, it doesn't make any difference. Okay? It's just that simple. And so now we are depending more and more on foreigners and foreign nations to supply our basic needs. That's no good at all. You know how they used to conquer cities, right? They just encircle them and send them out. Don't let water go in. Don't let food go in. Nobody in and out. You starve them to death. Or send them some food that's poison. <laughs> Nothing new under the sun, is it? Interesting. And so here, the devastation again. Verse 12, the vine has dried up. The fig trees has withered. The pomegranate tree, the palm tree, the apple tree, the trees of the field are withered. Surely joy has withered away from the sons of men. So verse 12, the various trees, it's just, it's just drought, it's just devastation. Uh, the harvest seasons used to be a joyous time where you, you, the, 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 the abundance of produce was evidence that God was with you and you took part of that harvest, you offered it to the Lord, there was a rejoicing, there was a celebration. That, that isn't going on at this point. They, they brought this on themselves. God has nothing to do with this infliction. And how often when you and I were in the world, something bad would happen. We'd, oh, God, I mean, you know, God, if you get me out of this. And we, we, we thought that God's the guy who's always after us, right? <laughs> no. Or sometimes Christians, they're not grounded or they get kind of thin-skinned and they blame God for everything. When it's their own doing. You know, my girlfriend, she's pregnant. Why didn't God stop me? What? What are you doing there at two in the morning? Having Bible study? You ended up in the works of the flesh. God didn't take you over there. And, and we do weird things with God, right? And again, we're in trouble. We just promise everything to God. Just wait if something happens here in the Middle East and the way the economics are going. I've been, the guy's been watching the market, 500 points Friday, over 300 Thursday. Church is going to be filled pretty soon <laughs> as people call upon God. Whenever you touch people's wallets, boy, they get religious. Oh, you have a national disaster. People get religious. But once it's all gone, business as usual, right? 
No big deal. Verse 13 down to 20, you have the call to mourn by the priest now. In verse 13, it says, Gird yourselves and lament, you priest. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come lie all night in sackcloth. Mourning. Repentance. You who minister at my, uh, to my God. Here the prophet identified my God. He's not your God, he's my God, and yet you're serving him. For the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. And so all these things that were to be beneficial for the altar of God and the priest's office, it's not there. They were to gird themselves in lamentation and humbling themselves with sackcloth. They were to lie all night. As they minister to my God, as he says, in all these drink offerings. Look at 14. He says, consecrate a fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the elders in all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. So verse 13 calls for the priests, the responsibility. Now, their extension to the people. Call them into the house of the Lord. Your God, cry out to the Lord. He's calling for repentance, for them to acknowledge that what has come upon them is because of their sin. God delights in mercy. God would much rather forgive than to bring judgment. We've seen that over and over again as we study these minor prophets. Isaiah says that it's a strange way. It's, 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 it's not natural for God to judge. He would much rather forgive. That's what he loves to do. He, he judges reluctantly. And so, in verse 15 to 18, you have the present plagues of the locust with the judgment of God. It's made very, very clear. as it already before in the first part of the the chapter. He says, Alas, the day of, uh, the last for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. Now all of a sudden he goes from the present, a plague, to the future. So there's a short term and a long term fulfillment here. The prophet declares the first of five mentions of the day of the Lord. Right here. The day of the Lord is God's uh, present judgment on Israel, through the locusts, short-term fulfillment. And the prophetic future is the long-term fulfillment as God's wrath is poured out during the last seven years of tribulation and great tribulation that we looked at this morning in depth. Joel transitions from the present right into the future to the day, that day, that great day, the day of the Lord. Peter did the same thing as we get to chapter 2, verse 28 on down, the day of Pentecost, when Peter quoted Joel for the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, and he kept on quoting him about the sun being darkened, the moon blood red, so on and so forth, and the stars falling, and he didn't make any distinctions, just quoted it all, yet that was not fulfilled in the day of Pentecost. It's in the future, in the last seven-year tribulation. So often the prophets just go from one, the short term, to the long term without any distinction whatsoever. 
Yet the New Testament, by the inspiration, sometimes points those things out as the short-term and long-term under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So the day of the Lord, again, um, Joel is the prophet of the day of the Lord. There shall come as a destruction from the Almighty. In other words, it's, it's, it's inescapable. It will come. God's still judging them. The plague is going to continue to come. And in the future, it will take place. He has laid it out already. We have all the factors. The church will be removed. The Antichrist will come. The temple will be built. The absolute authority, the Antichrist, will be over the entire world. At the end of the seven years, Jesus will come back with his church and fight the battle of Armageddon, judge the nations, and set up the kingdom. All of that is ahead. But before all that happens, the Lord's going to remove his church. The word is harpazo. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 and 17. Suddenly, violently, caught up. That's the word in the English. The Latin word for rapture is rapiri. It's not found in, in the Greek because it's a Latin word. The equivalent to that is arpasal. Suddenly, violently. And of all the appearances of that word, I believe 13 times in the New Testament, every one of them has an association of being translated from one geographical location to the other. Paul was caught up to the third heaven. The Ethiopian eunuch never saw Philip. He was harpazled to Azotus. A sword went out to sow seed, and some fell by the wayside of the seed, and the birds harpazled it from the earth to the sky. And the rest of the remainder are the exact same thing. Suddenly, violently, the Lord's going to remove his church. And so... The prophet looking into the future. Verse 16 um, on down now describes the judgment of God um, in the lack of food and, and the sufferings of the animal. Again, by, by the, um, the uh, plague of the locust, he says, Is not the food cut off from your eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? So there's no joy in the day of harvest, but also for now the ministry of the Lord. How often we read in the Old Testament when Solomon set up the whole 24 course of the priest, there would be trumpets, there would be harvests, there would be symbols, that the last songs, everything they have breath, praise the Lord. It was to be a joy. I mean, we are the only, if you want to call us a religion, we are the only ones that have everything to sing, to sing about and be happy about. People get upset at, at Christian funerals because we're happy. They want you to be bummed out. Why bummed out? They're with my Lord. I'm probably crying for me. I'm still here. Because we understand what goes on. But at the same time, when we go to funerals and we know people are not born again, it's a bummer. Because I know that person is not with the Lord and they're perished for eternity. Hell is real, ladies and gentlemen. And so is heaven. And so there's no joy in their harvest. There's no joy in, in their service to the Lord, the temple, nothing. Because it's, there's sins in the way. You can go to church. You can serve in ministry. You can play your games. But if, if sin's in your life, you're not happy. You've got one foot in the world and one foot in the, in, in the church. And you ever 
walk walls, fence walls when you were little and you straddled them? Whoa! That wasn't fun. You gotta be on one side or the other. You can't walk both ways. Can two walk together except they be agreed? MS33? No! And I agree with God. He doesn't agree with me. He says the rules. And then he gives me the ability to keep the rules. If I trust him. God doesn't call me and say, okay, ex, I know you're a disciplined guy. You can handle it. You don't need me. <laughs> Lord, help me. None of us can do it. We have to cry out to him. To him and him alone. Now in verse 19. I'm sorry, verse 16, uh, verse 17. The, the seed shrivels under the clods. Storehouses are in shambles. Barns are broken down for the grain has withered. How the animals groan. The herds of cattle are restless because they have no pasture. Even the flocks, the sheep suffer punishment. See, we bring calamity also on creation through our disobedience and our sin. We affect the environment. We affect things around us. Now with all this drought thing and everything, I'm just waiting for El Nino. We, we better thank God he doesn't send La Nina because uh, girls are always a little worse. <laughs> What's going to happen to all these hillsides and these fires? We're going to have mudslides. California seasons, fire, mud, and floods. Amazing. Do you think it has to do with our evil governors and leaders that live for themselves and don't care for the people? Absolutely. No if or but about it. Again, Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 14 through 15, Amos 5, 18 through 20, speaks of the day of the Lord. It's not a day of joy, it's a day of darkness, a day of gloom, a day of judgment. The people in Amos, they would say, oh yeah, let the day of the Lord come. You, sh- you know what you're talking about? It's judgment. 19 through 20, the prophet Joel identifies himself with the nation and intercedes, crying out to God. This is my responsibility and I fail at times. I get so mad at these guys. <laughs> But I have to pray, Paul says, pray for the kings, for those in authority, right? For governors. That it be well with us. Lord, open this guy's eyes. Lord, just put a stop to him. Lord, intervene. And and we have to pray. Because there's some very, very corrupt, evil people in power. And they don't really care about the people. And so here... Verse 19, O Lord, to you I cry out, for fire has devoured the open pastures, the flame has burned all the trees in the field. The beasts of the field also cry out to you. This is a rebuke to the people. The animals are smart enough to cry out to God. God understands them. (laughs) Then Jesus say, if you would keep silent, these very stones would cry out. God created everything for his glory. Here the prophet is looking around and seeing the consequence. He's just bummed. As I look at America, as I look at 
where we're going as I look to my son, my daughter to have to deal with this a lot longer than I will. I look at my grandchildren it grieves me. And so it has to drive me to God, Lord, and you, our hope is. You are sufficient. You were sufficient for Daniel. You were sufficient for, for uh, Esther. You were sufficient for Daniel's friends. You were sufficient for the apostles. You will be sufficient for us. You must come full circle. Or you will be worthless to yourself and everyone else. Our hope is not in the United States. Our hope is not in our bank account. Our hope is not in pleasure and happiness. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. I have to learn that every day. Some of you guys think I walk on water. I don't. If I step in water, I go to the bottom. I'm just like you. I am no different than you. I go through the same things, maybe some worse things. And I've got to cry out to God. I ever call any of you for counseling? <laughs> I go to the Lord. He's the one. And so, the beasts of the field cry out to you. For the water brooks are dried up, and the fire has devoured the open pastures. Man, there's no drinking water, the, the fields, the brooks, everything is dry. There is no uh, hay. There is no vegetation. I mean, it's just... And, and all of this is because of sin. Nothing else. Sin kills. The wages of sin is death. That's why we have to put on the armor of God, ladies and gentlemen. That's why we have to bring our thoughts into captivity. That's why I have to say no to Xavier every day. If you... Say yes to you in a little compromise. You'll say yes to the next little compromise. And before you know it, you're in big compromises. And before you know it, you are over your head. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal but spiritual, bringing down the strongholds of the enemy. Having done all to stand, we end up standing. Having put on the armor, being filled with the power of his might. The word, prayer, trusting in the Lord. And so, God would have us to turn to Him, keeping our account short. My little children, I write these things to you, that you do not practice sin as a habit of life. But when you stumble, when you fall, you have an advocate, a lawyer for the defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous, First John 2, 1. Whew. Thank God. Book of Hebrews, we have a high priest that's been touched with every infirmity and every point tempted as we are, yet without sin. So we are able to come to Him at any time and He understands exactly what you're going through. You come in the council with me, I may say, are you kidding me? You should be ashamed of yourself because I don't understand what you're going through. But you go to God, He'll know exactly what you're going through and He knows exactly what to tell you. He will never misunderstand you. He will never say something to you that will be wrong. He'll never go out of his way to just offend you and make you feel crummy. But he will deal with you as a father 
to a son or daughter. A perfect father. Because he has your best interest in mind. Never his own. Always yours. Why do we want to go to man? (laughs) We just complicate matters, don't we? Father, thank you for your grace and love, your goodness. Thank you for tonight and your word, and we pray that you continue to deal with our hearts. You're so good, Lord. You're so um, kind to us. Lord, we pray you continue to use us here at Calvary Chapel to reach out to others. Lord, you would raise up godly young men and women to serve you, to honor you. That your hand would be upon the marriages, the husbands making them heads of their home, seeking you, the wise, loving, submissive to you. The children, Lord, that they would follow the steps of their parents. That you would just raise up godly people here, Lord, for your glory. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ, as your Lord and Savior, then God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. Only you can repent. No one can repent for you. All the warnings in the world by people mean absolutely nothing. It's the warning that God gives to you as you hear his word. And he speaks to you very, very personal. And he says, you've been there too long. That's got to stop. And if that's you, then I would not put it off. I would lift your heart to him and ask him to forgive you and to save you right now. If this is your desire, maybe you're over the internet. And you see yourself as a sinner. Lost under God's wrath and that's God's grace. But you can call on his name to be saved right now. So this is your prayer to him, and he's going to save you right where you sit. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.